and welcome to another episode of the Politics Theory of the Podcast. In 1999, in the wake of the Kosovo conflict, Gilbert Ashkar published a book titled The New Cold War, The World After Kosovo. At the time, describing tensions between the United States, Russia and China in terms of a Cold War seemed to many to be outlandish hyperbole or very premature at best. Now, of course, the use of the term to describe the global situation is increasingly commonplace. But if we are indeed in a Cold War, the question arises, when did it begin? Should it be dated in Russia's case to the 2008 Georgia War, in China to the rise of Xi Jinping and the repression in Hong Kong, or do we need to think back much further? In today's episode, Gilbert joins the show to discuss his new book, The New Cold War, The US, Russia and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine in which he builds upon his earlier work to argue that the current situation is rooted in events and key decisions made during the 1990s, including the devastating collapse of the Russian economy, the failure to create a new security architecture in Europe after the end of the Cold War, and an increasing US-China tensions over Taiwan and other security matters, which were obscured by the deepening economic integration of the two states at the time. In the following interview, We discuss these topics, as well as why Gilbert thinks it's appropriate to describe Vladimir Putin's regime as neo-fascist, why recognising NATO enlargement as being a vector for Russian nationalism does not in any way justify the invasion of Ukraine, and we also talked about what Gilbert thinks a more just international order might look like. The podcast wouldn't be possible without the very kind support of its listeners, and if you would like to become a supporter, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. £5 patrons get access to episodes of PTO Extra, which include shorter episodes on current events, as well as episodes in which guests respond to listener questions, such as the recent one with Adam Tooze. Become a patron today and get access to all past and future episodes of PTO Extra. Today's episode is also brought to you by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State by Danny Dawling. Britain was once the leading economy in Europe. It is now the most unequal. 50 years ago, the UK led the world in child health. Today, 22 of the 27 EU countries have better mortality rates for newborns. No other European country has such miserly unemployment benefits, university fees so high, housing so unaffordable, or a government economically so far to the right. In his new book, Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State, Danny Dawling explores the social fissures that have emerged across Britain, exposing a new geography of inequality. David Olasoga describes the book as sobering, shocking and brilliantly incisive, a snapshot of a divided nation and a powerful antidote to nostalgic fantasies. Shattered Nation, Inequality and the Geography of a Failing State by Danny Dawling offers powerful insights into what we must do in order to save Britain from becoming a failed state. It's out this month from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Gilbert Ashkar is Professor of Development Studies and International Relations at SOAS, part of the University of London. He's written extensively on politics and development economics, as well as social change and social theory. His publications include The Clash of Barbarisms, September 11 and the Making of the New World Disorder, Perilous Power, the Middle East and US Foreign Policy, and The People Want, a Radical Exploration of the Arab Uprising. 
So the new book is titled The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine. But the first part of the book is comprised of an earlier work you published all the way back in 1999, which appeared in French as The New Cold War, The World After Kosovo, which was one of the earliest instances of an extended analysis of the possibility of the world system returning to something like the standoff of the Cold War. And perhaps even more presciently, it not only focused on the tensions between the Russian Federation and the United States, but it also raised the possibility of an alliance between the People's Republic of China and Russia, a prospect that seemed pretty unlikely at the time. The possibility of a new Cold War had seemed to many other analysts to be highly unlikely for a number of reasons, some of which we'll maybe come on to. But one of them was that the end of the Cold War had seemed to signal the end of any major ideological differences between the Western powers and their allies in Asia and the former communist bloc. Russia had undergone so-called shock therapy under Boris Yeltsin and had marketized its economy. China, although still under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, was also going through a process of marketization that had begun in the 1970s. Why, in your view, did the termination of major ideological differences not preclude the possibility of renewed hostility? And would it be right to say that you think the ideological differences between the liberal democracies and the so-called really existing socialism of the Eastern Bloc had always been overplayed as a determining factor in the Cold War standoff? I don't think that one needs to revise the view of the Cold War, the standard Cold War, as it was called, the period from 1945 until 1990, basically. You don't need to revise your view of that in order to understand that a Cold War is not something that is limited to countries with uh, systemic differences. Indeed, as the Soviet Union was compared to the, the Western bloc led by the United States. So the issue is that we tend to forget, due to that Cold War and the ideological divide and the systemic divide, we, we tend to forget that since the birth of capitalism, you've had a couple of centuries of antagonism between countries with basically similar uh, social systems, social economic systems, and the, the clashes were clashes of interest. And of course, the, the, the most obvious case is the First World War. In the Second World War, you had countries with uh, major systemic and ideological differences. You had the, the fascist axis, the axis countries, you had the, the, the Soviet Union, and you had the Atlantic Alliance. But the First World War had uh, nothing of these kind of differences. So it was obviously, and that's how it was perceived uh, at that time by the anti-war, uh, it was perceived as, as a war between imperialist countries, between imperialist countries, a war to, to divide the world among themselves. So that points to the fact that you don't need to have uh, major systemic differences in order to have tensions and even wars between countries. Now, in the present world, you may point to some differences like, uh, of course, there are differences in the political systems between the Western countries on the one hand and China and Russia, e each one being very different, uh, of course. 
However, these are not at the core, at the heart of the conflict. And any pretense of, of presenting this conflict as one, as, as some people do, between democracy and authoritarianism, forget that among the NATO countries, you have a number of countries run by a very far-right, uh, very right-wing government, very right-wing forces. So the issue here is not a defense of democracy or whatever it is. It is something more complex than that. Now, the concept of Cold War itself was actually born before the First World War in order to describe that condition that existed, that led to the First World War. And so this build-up of uh, military power on both sides of the, the divide of that time, and especially Germany, France, and Britain, and Russia, I mean, the, the countries that uh, were involved in the, that First World War, the major countries, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the term was first used about Germany by a, a German socialist, in describing this military build-up, I mean, what we, since the Second World War, have been calling the arms race, that's the core of what is called a Cold War. Hence, the, the term itself. The term itself doesn't point to ideology. It points to the fact that it is a war that is not waged directly, but through a build-up of weaponry. It's an arms race, and hence describing this war as a cold one, which might, of course, lead to, to a very hot one. But uh, that hasn't been the case directly during the Cold War. You had a lot of wars by proxy, of course, but not direct wars. So that's the point. I mean, your question is very appropriate because I keep having people telling me, ah, I read your book, but I'm not convinced in using the term Cold War because uh, there are no major ideological differences or because both China... Russia and the United States and all, and the, the other Western countries are all capitalists. Well, okay, and Germany and France were, were capitalists before the First World War, and, and what? No, I mean, the, the, the concept is not related to ideological differences. And to further support that argument, you point out that discussion of the possibility of a Cold War between the Russians and the Americans actually predates the 1917 Russian Revolution. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, the key issue here is that the idea of permanent readiness for war is what is really the core issue in what is called a Cold War. In the United States, you had this debate quite early on indeed, because after the First World War, the United States, which, as you know, intervened in the First World War starting from 1917, so quite late in the First World War, and actually the U.S. intervention contributed to accelerating the, the end of that First World War. After that First World War, the United States reduced again, and very importantly, its military expenditure because it didn't have a long history of major central, federal, uh, heavy military expenditure. It had remained quite limited uh, historically. So during the two world wars, they, they went back to a low level of military expenditure, and then they had to resume what they did for the First World War, that is a gigantic effort to turn their economy into a war economy they did that for their intervention in the First World War and did, did that at a much higher level again for the Second World War. But after that Second World War, the view prevailed that the United States should not go back to this uh, very drastic reduction 
in military expenditure, but should keep a level of military expenditure that allows it to be permanently ready for war. And of course, that was with a view of this uh, opposition between the two uh, global empires, the US-led empire, the Western empire, and the Soviet-led empire, which was called the Eastern Bloc. If we come closer to the current Cold War, if that is indeed the right term to, to use, typically analysis of the seemingly ever-increasing tensions between the United States, Russia, and China focus on the later part of Vladimir Putin's presidency, not going much further back than the 2008 Georgia War. And in China's case, the focus is on Xi Jinping and, and China's nationalist turn under his leadership. But you write in the book that it was possible to recognize two decades ago that the world had been put on a course that could lead to the present highly explosive situation. Detailed consideration of the events of the 1990s is crucial for the understanding of the present world situation. And you describe in the book how, in spite of the end of the Cold War, the so-called peace dividend of the early 1990s was extremely meagre, with US military spending remaining roughly at Cold War levels, which, uh, you know, as you've just pointed out, there have been periods where following conflicts, US military spending has significantly declined. But in this case, spending remains pretty elevated, and the importance of the military-industrial complex to the US economy as a whole also remains. And you go on to describe the United States as being addicted to military Keynesianism. Can you explain what military Keynesianism is and, and how it served to very substantially determine the US's post-Cold War posture and made it more likely that that peace dividend would indeed be so paltry? Yeah, let, let me first also comment on what you started with. Indeed, I mean, when I described the global situation as getting into a new Cold War, and in my analysis in 1999, that started with the, the Kosovo War. I saw the Kosovo War as the tipping point of a new Cold War. At that time, nobody was describing the, the, the international relations in those terms. And I mean, I got a lot of, of, of people expressing uh, disagreements or criticizing th those views. And I even, I can, I mean, I showed in the book how, how you have had, I mean, systematic denial of this existence of a Cold War. I could at some point Condoleezza Rice explaining uh, in very crude terms uh, that uh, how much she, she rejected that view. And, and yet over this quarter century, almost uh, since then, you can see how much this formula, new Cold War, has expanded. Uh, and now today you, you find it everywhere in articles, titles, books, uh, whatever. I mean, it has become a very common concept in the media. More and more uh, today you find it. So that's uh, one point. Now, the role of the military industrial complex in the U.S. economy became very crucial after the Second World War. As you know, the formula itself, the phrase itself, military-industrial complex, was popularized by U.S. President Eisenhower in his uh, farewell speech to the nation when he, he warned uh, his uh, compatriots, he warned the Americans against this military-industrial complex. And you had some Marx, American Marxists who created the term permanent war economy to uh, describe this new condition after 1945, and especially since the Korean War, of maintaining permanently uh, this readiness at war, which means also a very high 
a level of military expenditure. Of course, you have uh, had ups and downs in the in military expenditure. You have had uh, the Korean War was a peak uh, after 1945, of course. The other peak was Vietnam. And you had a third peak without a war, without a hot war, which was under Reagan, under the Ronald Reagan, where the military expenditure shot up tremendously. And this military-industrial complex is at the heart of the functioning of the U.S. economy in the post-1945 period. It became very crucial as a tool of state intervention in the economy. So the the state could intervene in the economy by using the military budget, by increasing or decreasing military expenditure, of course, keeping it anyway at a very high level, even compared to other, other Western countries, for instance. And this was really the only thing that had actually pulled the United States out of the Great Depression, of course. Well, yes, going back to the Second World War and the entry of the United States in that Second World War in 1941 after Pearl Harbor. And yes, that is the the only thing that resolved that crisis because it was lingering on despite the New Deal promoted by uh, by Roosevelt. So it contributed to, to resolving the crisis, but it, it hadn't been able to solve it radically. And that happened with the entry of the United States in the war and the shift of the whole U.S. economy into a war economy, a centralized war economy. It was absolutely amazing. I give in the, in the first chapter of the book, I give uh, some uh, indications about uh, how uh, important uh, that was and the, the, the leap in the U.S. economy that occurred at that time, thanks to the war, thanks to the entry of the U.S. in the war. And so this military expenditure became really a crucial economic tool. And also, if you take research and development, well, that's a country that is supposed to be a free market country with a very minimal state intervention. But that's a big lie. That's a big lie. I mean, it's only that the form of the intervention of the state in the U.S. economy is different from that of uh, countries, for instance, of Western Europe, where you have had much more open state intervention in the economy and a much larger public sector and the rest. So in the United States, under the pretension of uh, doing differently, in fact, through the military-industrial sector, even though those firms of the military-industrial sector were private firms, but they were, for all intents and purposes, functioning as if there were public sector. That is, in the sense that they were subsidized with the taxpayers' money. Guaranteed market. Yeah. If you think of it, just look at the way the United States, under Ronald Reagan, recuperated from its uh, economic decline and technological decline and went back to the pole position, went back to pole position. How did they do that? Well, through a massive injection of money in the military sector and in the research and development in the military sector. And that was crucial to the development of a whole range of new technologies, one of them being the Internet. As anyone who has uh, read something about the origin of the Internet, you'd find that this is linked to the Pentagon at the beginning. So that's part of this this big shifts, and and you can see how much, therefore, this massive military expenditure under Reagan, which appeared at the time as uh, irrational. You even had a famous uh, bestseller at the time by Paul Kennedy, The Rise and Fall of uh, of Empires. 
And uh, he ended the book, and that was in 87, 88, giving a very negative assessment of this uh, huge rise in military expenditure under uh, Ronald Reagan, explaining that that was overstretched and that imperial overstretch was signaling the, the beginning of the end of the American empire. And then later on, actually, he, he had to recognize that he was wrong on that because this massive military expenditure was crucial in, in, in actually reversing this decline, at least for a while. We're speaking of the 80s, and that had a major effect, which is still until today with us. I mean, when you, you, you look precisely at those technologies, especially at the time, where the borders between civilian and military technologies have become very porous in the terms of technology and all these uh, informatics, uh, all these electronic, all these new technologies of information and, uh, and communication. And therefore, this massive injection of money was really crucial in putting the United States again. I mean, when you look at who are the, the, the major firms in, in, in those new technologies from Microsoft to, I mean, you can... You have a whole list of them. Most of them are Americans, and that's related to that. On the point about that attachment to military Keynesianism, can you say something about how that then determines how the US operates in the post-Cold War world and just makes it more likely that it's going to just try and maintain that elevated military spending because the economy is so dependent on it? The reason why the United States maintained a high level of military expenditure in terms of percentage of GDP. Of course, it went down from the peak under Reagan. That's uh, normal because that was a peak in the same way that it went down after Vietnam from the peak of Vietnam and went down after Korea from the peak of Korea. So it went down, but it didn't get into what you, you mentioned uh, earlier, any major peace dividend because uh, the military budget w- was kept at quite high level which which is more or less within the average of the of the cold war years not far from that so that was one of the considerations that weighed on the choices made by the united states after the collapse of the Soviet Union. One consideration was, of course, the economic interest uh, uh, of the military-industrial complex. But that was only one consideration, because the key point here is everything that this military power, this military supremacy of the United States manages to bring to the United States. The U.S. hegemony is, in large part, based on this military supremacy. And the United States could even impose on its uh, major capitalist allies, Western Europe, Japan, impose on them a number of of issues when they they got into, into crisis since the 70s. And even if you take the whole history of relations between the United States and uh, the rest of the capitalist uh, world, you can see how huge were the privileges of the United States, one instrument of that being the dollar as the international currency. And, you know, the privilege of minting the international currency is a huge privilege that the United States had. And all economists, all clever economists, would explain to you that uh, this strength of uh, the dollar, this hegemony of the United States, could not be separated from the military supremacy of the United States as the the Lord Protector of the capitalist system, if you want, especially during the systemic confrontation that you had 
in the time of the existence of, of the Soviet Union. So that's therefore an interest that goes beyond just the narrow military industrial complex into all the uses of military power. That's a key point. And I think you could see a strategy playing there during those 90s where the United States faced the possibility of people saying, well, now the Cold War is over. There's no more a communist threat, as it used to be called, uh, designating the Soviet Union. And therefore, we don't need the protection of the United States any longer. And also, why not uh, uh, getting into very close relations with Russia, for instance, in the case of Germany or with China? And so the way to prevent such scenarios that would have very much uh, affected the ability of the United States to continue its hegemonic role, the way to do that was to to maintain or recreate tensions with Russia and with China. And in the case of China, is to create tensions because since the, the 70s, the United States had shifted under Nixon and Kissinger into uh, playing China against uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, China entered into some form of alliance for several years with the United States, to the point of even, at some point, the United States delivered weapons to China. I mean, can you believe it? But that's what happened when China was uh, was clashing with uh, with Vietnam. So in the 90s, what you had is, is, a, is a shift in this relation with China into injecting big dose of hostility in what had been until then a kind of uh, of collaboration between China and the United States. And so you had this display. And when during those 90s, my starting point, you know, Alex, is actually I, I looked into the U.S. military budget and U.S. military and the level of this military budget, which was, as I said, remained very high. And the official explanation in Washington of uh, of that, in, I mean, in the Pentagon, the Pentagon, the official explanation was that was based on the scenario of a war with Iraq and North Korea. I didn't buy at all into this explanation because that was a budget uh, creating a military capability which was far beyond. Uh, the ability of uh, of uh, Iraq and North Korea together, and uh, much more than that, actually. The United States, in the 90s, at some point, the United States, the military expenditure was equal to that of the rest of the world. Friends and foes together, combined, everyone, every other state. The United States was almost very close to spending as much as the rest of the world. And actually, until today, the United States, the military expenditure of the United States equals that of the 10 next most important military spenders. So that includes uh, China, Russia, France, Germany, and you, you, I mean, you, India, you name them. You, you put the 10 biggest military spenders in the world, and they, I mean, the United States equal all those 10. And that's absolutely huge. I came to the conclusion that Iraq and North Korea were in some way code names for Russia and China. And the whole thing was based on this scenario of Russia, I mean, post-Soviet Russia remaining a major potential enemy of the United States and China turning into one. And uh, this whole situation was set up in the 1990s. One possibility that was suggested during the 90s, and, and you mentioned this in the book, 
was that the high US defense spending that you described that continued uh, after the Cold War was because of the fear that Germany and Japan, the two strongest Axis powers during World War II, might uh, seek to go their own way once more and, and challenge US hegemony in the absence of the apparent threat from the Soviet Union. As you point out in the book, neither state, in fact, did anything to substantiate such worries. But do you think that even with that being the case, is it not conceivable that the high economic spending might have been maintained on the basis of quite diffuse and speculative threats that, yes, might have included Russia and China, but could also have included the reunited Germany and Japan and also the, you know, the so-called rogue states that you've mentioned there, North Korea, Iraq, Iran, say. After all, there was a certain stability associated with the Cold War, while the 90s might have appeared to US planners to be a situation of, of flux in which varied new threats might appear, including German and Japanese revanchism, however unlikely that now seems. I mean, in the 90s, you had that kind of, uh, of view. I think that was a kind of decoy, you know, just to give the Russians and even the Chinese, the impression that uh, this was an all-horizons policy of the United States, and the United States was hedging against uh, every potential threat, be it Russia, China, or Germany, or Japan, or the rest. But I, I don't buy at all in that. I mean, there was absolutely no credible scen scenarios at that time of, uh, of Germany and Japan going back to uh, what they were in the 1930s. And on the contrary, I mean, actually, the United States uh, very much supported the unification of Germany and pushed for the integration of Eastern Europe, which uh, strengthened Germany, first of all. So that, that's, not, uh, that's not the key thing. And was also encouraging Japan to carry more weight in terms of military spending. Exactly. The paradox is that people who give that as an explanation can't explain why the United States keep exerting a huge pressure on both Japan and Germany for the increase of their military effort. I mean, so it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that, that's how devious they are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no. the key point is, is, is Russia and China. In the case of, of uh, I mean, since the Clinton administration was the administration that took the key decisions in that regard, here, you can look at the main uh, guru, the main uh, inspirer of, uh, of the, the Clinton administration, which was uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, who had been the national security advisor of Jimmy Carter. He was the main influence on key uh, members of the Clinton administration, like Anthony Lake, Madeleine Albright, and the rest. And if you read uh, his writing, he's very clear about regarding Russia as a country that is, in some way, we could say almost uh, congenitally imperialist. And for him, the United States is not. And this is a, an adverse empire. So he would see Russia as major threat. He would advocate dismembering Russia, and he very much advocated, of course, the enlargement of NATO on the basis, on the postulate that Russia is still and is going to be again a threat. Now you can say, well, ah, that's, that's what happened. But that was a self-fulfilling prophecy when it was done in the 90s, because the kind of behavior that happened very much contributed to the outcome that we have today or to the outcome that uh, we have had over the last almost quarter century uh, with the, the uh, evolution of Russia under Vladimir Putin. 
all this was very much influenced by uh, the United States' uh, behavior and uh, relation to to, uh, to Russia. And China was seen also as, I mean, not by Brzezinski. On this, you have uh, uh, different uh, views. But, I mean, he, he tended to look at China as rather a country that should be brought into the circle of, of countries friendly to Washington. But China was was regarded as a convenient threat for the whole Asia-Pacific area, exactly like the function of Russia in, uh, in Europe. So uh, you had deliberate actions uh, with regard to, to Taiwan, for instance, by the United States starting in the 90s, which led to this, as I explained, this uh, uh, reversal of what had been some form of friendly collaboration, uh, even militarily speaking, between uh, China and the United States into hostility ever since. So, yes, I think that that was, and, and the, the, the scenarios were very much built on that. And if you look even at the map of military power of the United States, it is, I mean, the, the global system of, uh, of military bases and the rest is, is very much uh, around those two poles, that is uh, Russia and, uh, and China. Of course, uh, you have North Korea and the rest, but these are minor considerations. And the main concern is that they may hook up with one of the two of, of, of China and Russia. And uh, that makes the, the thing much more dangerous in a scene from, uh, from Washington. If we turn then to the situation in Russia in the 1990s, you argue that two key factors in the development of new tensions between Russia and the West and that also served to enable and, and embolden Russian nationalists, including Vladimir Putin, were NATO's mutation from a defensive alliance to one that operated beyond the borders of its member states, uh, which you've already sort of touched on there. And you point to the Kosovo War of the late 1990s as, as being a key early instance of that. But also Russia's economic crisis of the 1990s and the emergence of the oligarch class a process you describe as the most intensive case of what Karl Marx called primitive accumulation. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of primitive accumulation, its relevance to the Russian case in the 1990s, and also the sheer scale of the economic disaster that unfolded in the country, and how, in your view, it undermined Russian liberals and laid the basis for the nationalist turn under Vladimir Putin? Primitive accumulation is a concept that you find at the end of Volume 1 of Karl Marx's uh, Capital. One issue that the economist of the time would uh, need to consider is, uh, in terms of economic history, how did the, the conditions for capitalism, how did they get created? How did you get this uh, accumulation of money that uh, went into, later on, into industrial investment? And you had some idyllic uh, views that you can find in Adam Smith and the rest. And so Marx criticized that very much and explained that this primitive accumulation was essentially based on force. Force in uh, in expropriating, well, what will be called later on the colonies, I mean, the, the, the global south, uh, the, and also in the local the peasantry, like the enclosure uh, in Britain and the rest. So this idea, therefore, of uh, dispossession, as uh, David Harvey will uh, famously call it later on, I mean... Uh, Accumulation by dispossession, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So this dispossession that, that leads to this accumulation, this is basically the essence of primitive accumulation in Marxist analysis. 
And that's what you had in Russia at much higher and more intensive level than history has ever seen anywhere. So if you take the rapidity of that, the very few years and the scale of it at the level of this huge country and the huge plunder that happened at that time, that is unprecedented historically. There's nothing of that dimension. That's really the most intensive case of that kind of primitive accumulation because you had a system where you had no private property and therefore how would you turn that into a capitalist market economy? Therefore, this primitive accumulation movement happened in Russia in the the form of this uh, gigantic plunder that was called shock therapy by the IMF and uh, uh, those milieus, very much advocating that. And uh, therefore, you have a convergence between uh, Western promotion of that and local local crooks who, uh, who were looking forward to uh, making the, the, the most of, of all this. Now, the, the 90s were a terrible, absolutely terrible period in the uh, history, in the economic, social, whatever, uh, political history of, of, uh, of Russia. Just to give you an idea, the impact of the 90s, the collapse of the Russian economy during the 90s was uh, significantly more, much more, than what its collapse in the Second World War. I mean, the country had been ravaged, devastated by by the the Nazis. You had uh, 30 million uh, people killed and all that. And yet, the economic impact of all that, if you see the the drop in the gross domestic product, the GDP, the, the one of the Second World War is substantially lower than that of, of the 90s. So that just tells you how terrible that period was. And how did the economic collapse lay the basis for that nationalist turn and, and really sort of undermine the political position of Russian liberals? Yeah, well, it's history has seen that repeatedly. When you have a very sharp economic crisis and a collapse of a country, especially a country that used to be a major power, that creates a very strong national frustration and social frustration. And this could lead either to people getting radically anti-capitalist, and you can you can see the, the, the development of anti-capitalist uh, trends under such conditions sometimes in history, but uh, unfortunately, even more often one could see this creates a, a fertile ground for ultra-nationalist far-right tendencies. And of course, the best-known example in history is uh, Weimar Germany, where when you had this uh, combination of uh, national frustration uh, due to the conditions imposed on uh, Germany by the victors of the First World War, with the economic collapse that uh, accelerated there with the Great Depression, which uh, reached a very, very uh, dramatic level uh, in that country. And this this created, uh, very obviously, the ground for uh, Hitler to to come to power. The Nazis managed to to expand, grow, and all that, and, and seize power, exploiting these conditions. So what you had in Russia in the 90s, was a fertile ground for the emergence of authoritarian nationalism and uh, what is called also revanchism, that is, this idea of recuperating the past power and past glory of the country, whether people are looking back to uh, the heyday of the Soviet Union or 
more often to the heyday of imperial, I mean, Tsarist, uh, imperial Tsarist Russia. And you add to this also the, the fact that the president during the 90s, Boris Yeltsin himself, actually assaulted democracy. I mean, the, the, this very fragile democracy that emerged in Russia with the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, the first major act against it was by Boris Yeltsin, and that was applauded by the United States. I mean, he bombed the, the Russian parliament, the, the democratically elected Russian parliament of the time to impose his will. And this is Boris Yeltsin that by the end of the decade and the end of the century and the millennium, that's we speak of 1999, first appointed Vladimir Putin as prime minister, and by the end of the year, handed over the presidency to him. So he, he put him in power. And, and Putin is very much a product of, of this, this crisis and will uh, build up his own power in relation to the genesis of his own presidency and uh, exploiting uh, increasingly with time nationalism, Russian nationalism, and seeing in that a major ideological tool to confront, for instance, his uh, at some point, his uh, the ebb in his uh, popularity, as happened when he came back as president after 2012. On the matter of NATO's shifting role in the 1990s, today it's become very difficult even to raise the issue of NATO enlargement when accounting for Moscow's actions and, and in particular the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, that's perhaps understandable enough because people want to lay the blame for the Ukraine war squarely at Moscow's door, given that Putin does, of course, bear the greatest responsibility for, for actually launching the invasion and, and for all the violence and misery that's, that's ensued. And also, there's no avoiding the fact that there are some people who are notionally on the left who are outright apologists for Putin. And it's understandable that people would want to disassociate themselves from them and not to be sort of confused with them by the fact of, of pointing to NATO enlargement. But in the book, you detail how those warning of the potentially dire consequences of NATO enlargement and the economic humiliation of Russia were not confined to Russia itself, but that similar views were coming out of the foreign policy establishment in the United States, and that the Clinton administration of the 1990s itself was actually split over the issue before eventually coming down on the side of expanding NATO into the former Soviet sphere of influence. Could you talk a little bit about those in the West who were sounding those warnings? and the nature of that debate within the Clinton administration between so-called doves and, and hawks? The issue of the enlargement of NATO was anything but unanimous among Western powers and in the United States itself. And uh, yeah, I, show, I showed already in, the, in 1999, I pointed to this uh, intensive debate that you had in the United States about this which was also a public debate, I mean, at least at the level of the establishment, not uh, maybe in the elections, but it was a debate within the intelligentsia, if you want, the academic and uh, foreign policy and political establishment. And uh, you had a very, very important opposition to NATO's enlargement. It was pointed to the fact that uh, there was quasi-unanimity among uh, American historians, and for good reason, in opposing the enlargement of NATO, because they would point to uh, historical examples and precedents, exactly as we just did. They would point to the way Germany was treated after the First World War, how much this contributed to the disaster 
that uh, came uh, came after, and they would contrast this with the integration of Western Germany in the Western system after 45. And the same with Japan, of course. Yes, exactly. The same with Japan. So you had the this, this strong opposition from people for intellectual uh, reasons, but also you had you had the political circles themselves. A big uh, part of the establishment, the, the foreign policy establishment was against. And in the administration itself, the Clinton administration, the first term of Clinton, uh, you had very sharp debate among uh, the, the members of the administration. And you had those who were influenced by who were very much in favor of the enlargement, whereas you had the defense secretary of that time, William Perry, uh, was opposed. And he he wrote uh, later on, after he ceased being in his post, he wrote about that. He he saw the danger of doing that, and uh, he was very much uh, against that, advocating instead an integration of Russia in in the global concert, if you want, in the global system, much more massive economic aid to Russia, which uh, he, I mean, what he advocated, he compared to the Marshall Plan through which uh, the United States injected money in Western Europe after 1945. And therefore, I mean, you had a completely different vision, but uh, this vision was defeated uh, very much, unfortunately, I should say, because of the the consequences, uh, which are the consequences we see today, which uh, which are absolutely dreadful. I mean, dreadful world situation. Now, you started by saying that you can't today speak of of NATO enlargement, but that's uh, amazing in some way. The assumption that if you say that NATO's enlargement played a role in creating the present conditions, that means that you justify the invasion of Ukraine. But this is a non sequitur. That doesn't make sense. I mean, whatever, even if, if Ukraine... We're going to join NATO in 21 or 22. Even that would not justify in the least the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, right? The only justification for war is self-defense. Any war that is not a war of self-defense is a war of aggression. By, I mean, by definition in some way. So it doesn't excuse or justify Russia in the least to say that the enlargement of NATO has played a key role in creating this antagonism and actually was one of the considerations, I mean, that uh, enabled Putin to exploit this uh, nationalism, Russian nationalism, to revive it, to, to exploit it very clearly. Now, it's not the only reason for which uh, he invaded Ukraine. I'm not saying that, but of course, there is no denial that the enlargement of NATO, the conditions fostered by Western countries and the U.S. in particular in Russia in the 90s. All these issues played a key role. And then later on, the whole succession, because just to look at that, uh, Alex, you have in 1990, the, the, the Soviet Union is collapsing. It will officially be dissolved by the end of the next year, 91. And they have George Bush Sr. making a famous speech in 1990 announcing a new world order, explaining that the new world order would be based on international law and uh, the rule of law, the the United Nations, the Charter, etc. Right? Very nice. And then, nine years later, you have the United States. I mean, first, you have, in 97, the decision to enlarge NATO, which was taken basically 
94 and uh, officialized in 97 with uh, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic uh, being integrated into NATO. And then 99, NATO, which instead of being dissolved because it was basically, it had been created against Soviet Union and there were no longer a Soviet Union, instead of being dissolved, NATO is enlarged, revamped, and mutate from a so-called defensive alliance into waging wars that have nothing to do with its charter. The Kosovo War was not at all related to any aggression against any NATO member. And add to this, the most important here, is that it's a war that has been waged by NATO, circumventing the United Nations Security Council, because there it would have been opposed by both Russia and China. And therefore, it was a violation of international law. That's happened in 99. That's why I say this was a tipping point. So they understood that this whole thing about international law, New World Order, was just a pure lie. The United States was not at all in the business of doing that. It was more than ever in the business of doing whatever suits its interest without consideration for, for the rest of the world. And the next, of course, stage that was uh, under Putin already was the Iraq war. Again, you had the United States invading Iraq in a blatant violation of international law, completely circumventing the UN Security Council, notwithstanding Russian and Chinese opposition, but even the opposition of allies, old allies of, of, of Washington in, uh, in Berlin and in Paris. I mean, France and Germany were also opposed to that war. And, and so, I mean, of course, you can't forget all that and just look at the invasion of Ukraine. The invasion of Iraq is no better. And so, uh, unless you take sides and you have a completely distorted view in taking sides in, in, in that form between the United States, Russia, and all this, I mean, you, if you look objectively at the, the global situation and from the standpoint of the interest of world peace, then you see that uh, it's not uh, it's not black and white. Uh? It's not uh, there is uh, one culprit and the rest are uh, angels. No, Washington actually has a huge, a much more responsibility in the present global situation than any other country. That there's, I mean, there, I mean, can't see any any possibility of of uh, even a real discussion of that because Washington was so much more powerful than everyone since the 90s and for a few decades that it was in a position to shape the world. And that was a formula used in Washington very much at that time, shaping the world. And they shaped that world. They shaped the international security uh, architecture and the rest in the worst possible way, which gave us what we have today. How would you respond to the point that in the case of NATO enlargement, you know, this is not something that occurs by decree. You know, the United States doesn't say to Poland, you will join NATO. The Poles and other Eastern European states and, and, and former Soviet republics and so on have their own agency. And obviously, the leadership of many of these states believe it to be in, in their interest, if not necessarily in the interest of the country as a whole, but nevertheless, in their interest to join NATO. And what would you say to the perspective that says, well, you know, if they, if they want to join NATO, surely that's up to, to them. Russia may not like it, but why should Russia be able to, to veto what military alliance a Poland or, a, or Ukraine d decides to join? Yeah, I mean, there's, I don't deny, and doesn't make sense, of course, to deny the agency of, of countries, of states. They are not uh, puppets, of course. 
And uh, there is no doubt that these states uh, wanted to join NATO as they wanted to join the EU, because that meant for them joining the Western system, which uh, for them was a a way to get rich as countries. I mean, to to get into the club of uh, wealthier countries and uh, modernized countries and the rest. So, I mean, well, you can very much understand that. And also, most importantly, I should say, in the case for NATO, when we speak of NATO, not the EU, is the precisely what I said about the way of 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 dealing with Russia that just confirmed any fears that uh, those uh, countries may have had uh, of Russia, because there were other ways to deal with Russia once the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, it would have been possible to get rid of NATO as a military alliance and all that, and replace that by enhancing the role of the Organization for the Security and Cooperation in Europe, which includes all the countries of the former Soviet Union and uh, almost all Western countries. So all Europe, West to East, is included in that organization and enhance that with uh, uh, stronger rules and all that and that provide clear protection on the basis of the UN Charter, therefore, against any, any act of aggression of one country against another. You could have given guarantees very different from NATO, but precisely Washington didn't want and wanted to keep NATO as the only kind of guarantee that these countries may be given. And that's that's what led to that. So, yes, they wanted to join NATO. But, you know, if you want, Alex, if you apply to join uh, some club uh, in London, some, uh, you know, rich, uh, rich men club, you're not going to be accepted, right? They decide if they accept you or not. <laughs> so, I mean, these I countries... That, I think that's true in my case, yeah. Absolutely. So, <laughs> in the case of uh, of these countries, yeah, they wanted to join NATO, but the decision was uh, that of NATO, not their decision. It's NATO that decides which country can join. And in the first place, the decision was made to keep NATO. That's the first fateful decision, very bad decision. A second decision to mutate NATO, turn NATO from a defensive alliance into into a, a so-called uh, security organization, which means basically an organization for war, wars that are not uh, defensive of its own uh, members. And three, to uh, enlarge it uh, to to these uh, these countries, and by giving them the impression that they were getting safer by joining NATO, actually, the very fact of this enlargement of NATO made Europe much less safe than it could have been had uh, a different kind of policy been pursued. That's what I explained. I mean, that was the self-fulfilling prophecy of projecting a view of Russia as a kind of atavistic imperialism, that it's it's in the genes of this country to be an imperial thug or something like that, and uh, therefore we should uh, coalesce against it. And of course, you have had strong uh, feelings against Russia in many of, of those countries, like Poland, for instance, and it, it was easy to exploit these feelings for the United States in order to enlarge its imperial network. And that's what happened, because NATO is, is basically that. It's it's an imperial network led by the, the, the Rome of this uh, global empire, which is in Washington. So staying with the 1990s, but turning to relations between Russia and China, as you've already mentioned, relations between the two countries had been 
extremely frosty ever since the Sino-Soviet split beginning in the early 1960s, albeit with something of a thaw in the relationship in the last years of Mikhail Gorbachev's premiership of the Soviet Union. But on the relationship between the new Russian Federation and, and, and China in the 1990s, you write in the book that the collapse of the Soviet Union effectively opened the way for a new era in relations between Moscow and Beijing, the two governments driven by common and reciprocal interests. Why did the collapse of the Soviet Union have that effect, in your view? And, and what were those common interests between the two countries that had seemingly not been operative during the Sino-Soviet split years? I mean, for the collapse of Soviet Union, just for the simple reason that uh, since uh, the 60s, you had the Sino-Soviet rift or Sino-Soviet conflict, as it was called. Uh, you had a very high degree of hostility building up between the two countries. And, you know, in, in Maoist terms, Russia came to be described as a social imperialist and uh, rejected in the same way that for a while the United States was rejected. Later on, you had the theory that uh, this social imperialism is worse than the, the other one, and therefore that justified the alliance with Washington against Moscow. So you had this uh, very deep uh, hostility between uh, the Soviet Union and, and China. Now, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, you have a different regime. Secondly, you no longer have the Soviet Union bordering China as you had, and this large Soviet Union, including many countries, it's a much more reduced Russia that China is facing, a Russia that became quite weak economically, and therefore a Russia with which China could build very different relations. Now, what they happened to have in common was created precisely by Washington. Any inevitability, there was nothing inevitable in this rapprochement between uh, Russia and China. It happened because during the 90s, as I explained, Washington created very purposely, very deliberately, tensions with both countries by a number of decisions, and that pushed the two countries to collaborate in the face of what they started calling from that time hegemonism, of course pointing to the, the United States. So they found some complementarity in the sense that Russia was badly in need of, uh, of money and therefore needed to export its two main export items, which are oil and gas on the one hand and, uh, and uh, military hardware on the other. These are the two sectors that Russia inherited from the Soviet Union, where you keep a very strong uh, market potential. I mean, oil and gas for, uh, for obvious reasons, but the military industry had been the sector in which the Soviet Union uh, went the farthest in the competition with the United States. It was given a high priority. I mean, we mentioned the, the role of the military industrial complex in the United States, but if you can speak about its role in the Soviet Union, which was much higher again. I mean, the, the, the importance of the military expenditure in the economy of the Soviet Union was much bigger still than, that, uh, than what you had in the US. So anyway, Russia needed money and China needed weapons. And the Western countries would not sell sophisticated weapons uh, to China. Russia was willing uh, to do that. And that was the, the, the beginning of this, uh, this connection that has developed uh, since then with time. One argument that was, that was made against the possibility that a, a very meaningful alliance could develop between Russia and China 
was that the overall volume of trade between the two in the 1990s was much too meagre for that to be a possibility, especially compared with Russia's economic links with Europe or China's dependence on exporting to the US market and on acquiring US direct investment. And obviously, the latter dynamic was long pointed to as the reason why there could never be a Cold War between China and the US, because they were economically much too integrated. But you argue that it's it's less the volume of trade that mattered, but more the nature of it, and that, that sales and purchases of military equipment and broader military links, which were absent in relations with the US, mattered much more and, and laid the basis for that firmer alliance. So can you say a little bit about the military aspect of that relationship between China and Russia and why it was just so, so important, even, even if you know, regular trade was relatively small? Well, first of all, we have to debunk this uh, very wrong views that if countries are integrated economically, they can't go to war. You know, the first era of globalization was the the one that preceded the First World War. Yeah. Economic historians will tell you. Huh? And the integration of these European countries that went to war had gone through gigantic leaps during uh, those uh, decades before the First World War. And this did not prevent them from clashing into a terrible war. So it doesn't make sense. I mean, this is a very wrong uh, assumption that if countries have uh, I mean, strong economic links, they can't go to war, they can't be uh, enemies. That, that, that's not true. Now, in the case of China and Russia, each of the, the two countries had more interest from the economic point of view, much more interest with the West than with each other, right? I mean, China's uh, economic relation with the United States in particular is well known. I mean, the, 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 there has been some kind of interdependence of these countries. A lot of, uh, I mean, a big part of the, the amazing uh, economic growth of China since the 90s was an important part uh, due to U.S. investment there. All these foreign uh, direct investment of, of U.S. firms turning to Chinese uh, labor and I mean, that's well known. Uh, you know, you still have some of the key industries of the United States produced in China, like uh, Apple, to give one example. So you had this for China. And Russia was economically more interested, in fact, in, in relation with uh, Germany in particular, with uh, Western Europe, with France, as sources of uh, much needed technology too and uh, economic uh, aid and all that. And uh, at that time in the, I mean, China has become a huge economic powerhouse, but this has been the outcome of uh, 30 years. But we are speaking of relations that developed since the turn of the century or, or during uh, first in the 90s and then under Putin since the, the turn of century. So, there's no doubt that Putin at the beginning was very much looking forward to the integration of Russia in Europe. That was what he wanted. He addressed the German parliament, and I quote his speech. He said, we are part of Europe. I mean, uh, we, we see ourselves as a part of Europe, and we want to develop our links. And you know that uh, he worked very much on that during all these years under Schroeder, Merkel, and all that. He worked very much on strengthening the, the economic links between Germany and his country. And you know very well how much the United States was resenting that. Very much resentful of that. The United States was very much irritated by this development of relations between Germany and Russia, because that's precisely the kind of scenario that the United States wanted to prevent. And that's what I explained. That's why all the choices made in the 90s, that's the main rationale 
rationality of these choices. The same goes with France, you know. France, uh, since de Gaulle, de Gaulle, you know, at some point even partially withdrew France from the military command of NATO and uh, was speaking of Europe from the Atlantic to the Ural. That means a, a Europe that includes Russia, right? And so this view is something that was very popular among the Russians. And that was the natural inclination of the Russians. In the same way, the natural inclination of China was to deal with its uh, Pacific, uh, uh, its neighbor in the North Pacific, the United States. I mean, the, 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 it, it saw this as very attractive economically. But all this was jeopardized by military political uh, stances. And that's the point. I mean, the, the very attitude of the United States uh, has pushed these countries to collaborate more and more among themselves, even though their ability to collaborate is limited, is limited because of the weakness of the, the Russian economy. And actually, this gets even more limited in the sense that one of the two major products that uh, Russia could sell to China, which is military hardware, China is less and less in need of it because technologically it's getting to the top in that field and no longer really in need of the Russians for that. Well, still need oil and gas, but oil and gas, look at the Chinese. They don't want at all to depend on Russia. They didn't green light uh, the, the, the project of a second uh, major pipeline that the Russians were very keen on uh, on uh, getting them approved. They developed their relation. Uh, I mean, one of their main pur- purveyor is the Saudi Kingdom, which uh, which is not exactly uh, a Russian uh, asset. So, I mean, you, you can see that none of these two countries, at the bottom line, none of these two countries is very keen. It's it's really an alliance of convenience. It's uh, there is no love. There's absolutely no love between Beijing and Moscow. But it's a marriage of, of convenience because of the need to face an increasingly uh, aggressive uh, United States. When I say increasingly aggressive, look at the Trump years for China. The Obama years were years of detente with China. But then suddenly comes uh, Donald Trump with an, I mean, uh, really a warlike uh, discourse uh, against China. I mean, he did the reverse with Russia. That's a different story. And you would see Joe Biden's policy regarding China as being more similar to Donald Trump's than it is to Obama's, right? Absolutely. It's, it's it's, It's a big, I was going to say disappointment, but that would... Uh, give the impression that uh, I had any or much illusions about Biden. But, I mean, even that, uh, I mean, you, you could have expected him to be a little smarter than just continuing this very aggressive, uh, very hostile line that Trump inaugurated uh, towards China. But he didn't. He just continued that. And he's busy building up military alliances around China. Just recently now, he has this... Uh, I think it's in Camp David, meeting with the uh, South Korean and Japanese, very obviously anti-China alliance. AUKUS, uh, this awkward alliance in which the UK got itself with uh, Australia and the United States, very clearly anti-China. The Quad, adding India to Australia, Japan, and the United States, very much anti-China. So a network of alliances. So Chinese rulers, they don't need to be paranoid to see that they are besieged, they are encircled by a hostile United States building up networks against them. That's obvious. 
So how do you want them under such conditions to break with the Russians? They would be stupid to do it. I mean, frankly, I mean, put yourself in their shoes in the strategic sense, you would understand that they, they can't do that. And so they don't like the invasion of uh, Ukraine. They obviously were quite embarrassed and uh, did not like that, but uh, they are not going for this reason to break with Russia when they are facing what they are facing from the United States. This isn't really a question, I suppose, but it's more an observation about the book. But for me, I think that one of the most interesting aspects of the book is that emphasis on the importance of the 1990s to the situation now. Because I think regarding US-China relations, a lot of the sort of standard narrative is that at one point, the economic and military sort of dynamic was kind of in tandem. The US pursued a policy of relative detente with China, even extending into the 1990s at the same time as the economic relationship is building. And that at some point that changes and there's a split. And now we're in a new situation where, in fact, there's a reconvergence of the economic and the military. But now it's in terms of being hostile on both sides of the equation. And we see the CHIP Act in, in the US and so on and the efforts to really sort of try and slow down China's economic rise. But the book sort of emphasizes the point that on the, on the security side, right through the 90s, there is real tension. You know, the US is moving closer to Taiwan's position than it, than it had hitherto, where it had been much more ambiguous and much more accommodating of, of China's perspective on Taiwan. And I just, you know, I just think that's very valuable and, and interesting and shows how important the 1990s is to the current situation. Yeah, absolutely. You, you're uh, very right to, to emphasize the importance of, of the 90s, that's the transition decade, you know, between the, the, the Cold War and what I called since 99, the new Cold War. And that happened during those few years, very few years, uh, through uh, a number of, of, of decisions in which the, I mean, the, the, the I mean, Clinton administration was the, the, the I mean, which was uh, the, the, the administration during most of those uh, 90s. It played the key role. And the world today, as we know it, is a result, uh, it's a direct product of uh, the seeds that were sown during uh, that time. And that's what we, we need to understand. Now, to say all this, I mean, some people don't look beyond the, the very short term and just believe that everything revolves around the Ukraine discussion. No, the issue is not here. There is far beyond Ukraine. You have the, the whole, I mean, the, the future of the world is at stake. These kinds of policies, they are extremely dangerous because they are creating, on the one hand, the threat of a global war is today higher than it was even at some of the tense moments of the Cold War. So, I mean, we, we are really uh, in a very dangerous global situation. That's on the one hand. So the risk of war, and then you look at it uh, from the point of view of what this is preventing, because this lack of cooperation due to those hostilities among all these countries is a major impediment also in the only war that is really legitimate for humankind, which is the war against climate change. I mean, also against poverty and the rest, we can add. So, I mean, there are wars that are in the interest of humanity. And these wars, especially climate change today, are more urgent than ever. I mean, the environment is collapsing. And in order to, to face this, you, you need cooperation between countries. 
and you need a lot of investment in facing this climate change. But countries of the world are spending much more. They are spending trillions, that is thousands of billions of dollars for war, for the military, in military expenditure. And and a, a very tiny fraction of that is spent on the ecological issues. So everything is related. That's why the issue is not just the narrow issue of Ukraine. And I mean, I support uh, Ukraine's right to defend itself against Russian aggression. The, the point is not here. But we have to look at uh, the the fact that even this Ukraine situation is exploited by the United States in promoting the kind of uh, policies that created the disaster in which we are in the first place. And this carries on. So, for instance, just uh, just to show you that even how much this can be even against the interests of Ukraine itself. Well, very easily, from two days, just two days into the invasion, 24 February 2022, uh, Russia invades Ukraine. Okay? Two days later, exactly, the Chinese official statement is, we support the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries, including Ukraine. Uh, I'm quoting from the Chinese statement. And yet, what does Washington do? Just ignore it. Why? Because they didn't want to bring China into the point. They wanted to take advantage of this uh, Russian aggression. They didn't want to bring China, that would have meant also bringing in the UN Security Council and the rest. And that would have spared the Ukrainian population, and also the Russian, by the way, but the Ukrainian population mainly, uh, a lot. And, uh, and, and the Ukraine as a country, a lot. Had you had uh, some break early on, stopping that war, bringing the Chinese in to, to, to stop it I mean, on the basis of their declared positions on that. But Washington did not do that. So even in that regard, it is very harmful to the interests even of the Ukrainian. So it's true that they are sending weapons and all that to the Ukrainians. But from their perspective, from Washington's perspective, this has been, at least until now, something that they see as uh, in the interest of the United States. Anyone believing that the United States is defending international law or uh, the sovereignty of countries or whatever, excuse me, I'm sorry to say, but would be rather naive to use a polite term. Yeah, The, the country that uh, keeps violating the sovereignty of all other countries that invaded Iraq, that uh, waged this and that war, that uh, bombs the rest of the world, that sends drones everywhere. I mean, this country is is defending democracy uh, and the, the rule of law in, in Ukraine. I mean, come on. On the question of nationalism in Russia, in the book, you suggest that Russia under Putin has progressed from being an imitation democracy, to use Dmitry Furman's term, to being first what is called a, a managed democracy, and now to what you describe as being arguably neo-fascist in character. Can you explain what for you differentiates the managed democracy era of, of Russia under Putin and the later and, and ongoing and perhaps escalating neo-fascist moment, which you date from Putin's re-election as president in 2012 and, and which really ramps up as, as tensions increase with Ukraine? Yes, I mean, there is a shift from uh, 
from yeah you you had various terms with uh, different russian authors you had one critical authors calling it imitation democracy that's uh, Fuhrman, whom you mentioned you've had uh, the one of the architect of that who called that managed democracy which is a kinder way to to call it Basically, others would call that illiberal democracy. That is, uh, you have formally a democracy, but no, I mean, limited freedoms and limited possibilities for an opposition to build up. That's basically what you got. Now, I believe that you have had a, a shift because you have had a gradual hardening of the regime in Russia. And uh, it's true that uh, a turning point, an important turning point, where the the mass demonstrations that faced Putin, you remember that Putin, as the constitution was, he, he got it changed later on, but you had four years uh, terms of presidency that uh, and you you were limited to two. So he had to to let his uh, his acolyte Dmitry Medvedev uh, be uh, the, the president on the face of it <laughs> yeah, of in, course in, in name he, only yeah, in name only absolutely. And uh, and he became the prime minister for four years. And then he gets back in 2012. But there he faced a mass opposition. And uh, that's the time of uh, the so-called Arab Spring, if you remember, 2011. And this has a, a global impact. And one of the impacts was, was in Russia, where you had square occupations, movements, and all that uh, big opposition against uh, Putin, denouncing also the elections are as uh, rigged, as unfair. And the polls at that time showed his popularity uh, going down sharply. So he had to react to that. And so you had someone who, as long as he could run the country with uh, keeping control, tightening uh, controls, uh, preventing the opposition from really growing, and but uh, securing a comfortable majority, that was okay for him. When he saw this threatened, he gets into more and more, therefore, suppression of freedoms, of democracy and all that, and more and more in attempting to revamp his popularity, exploitation of nationalism. And so he did. So he did. And that's why, actually, the first war on Ukraine, compared even to the second, in 2014, the first war on Ukraine was, on the one hand, meant at preventing Ukraine from joining NATO. That was preceded in 2008 by a war on uh, Georgia and also military encroachment of Russia into Georgia. The same will happen with Ukraine in 2014. So uh, 28 is the turning point because that's when the Bush, George W. Bush administration, very much pressured the other NATO countries into stating that Ukraine and Georgia will become NATO members. And that was completely infuriating for the Russians. And when the the domestic situation in Ukraine shifted in 2014, Putin did the same in Ukraine. So that's one side. The second side of it, especially the annexation of Crimea, is not a matter of NATO. It's a matter of exploiting, of playing on Russian nationalism. Every Russian, every witness of that will tell you that this was extremely popular in Russia. The annexation of Crimea and that's also because of the very specific uh, history of this territory. I mean, it's not a, an easy topic. And my position on issues like Crimea or part of Donbass is that 
the only way to solve these issues democratically is through a democratic referendum under UN, organized by the UN and uh, with the deployment of UN troops. And that's, that's the only way with the vote of the original population of these territories. Anyway, let me close the parenthesis. So the annexation of Crimea was for Putin's popularity at home, very much so. That was part of this evolution of his uh, regime. And that carried on. Uh, It was even, I should say, his own uh, relation to power worsened again with COVID and uh, the the kind of maniac uh, isolation he he got into, which, I mean, everybody has seen the, the, the bizarre pictures of people being kept at very long distance from him, even his close uh, close collaborators. That was quite amazing. And of course, this will culminate with the invasion of Ukraine uh, last year in 2022. And so this is completing, this invasion just completed the shift because it came along with a final blow given to whatever margins of freedom remained in Russia. These has been suppressed very harshly. Nationalism has been boosted to extreme levels, and therefore you have all the features of what is called neo-fascism, which is different from that of the 30s in that you don't have those kind of paramilitary parade and all that as you had with the Nazis or the Italian fascists. But uh, basically, some of the key ingredients are there, this ultra-nationalism, the uh, cult of the leader, the suppression of freedoms, and uh, even though they maintain formal elections, nobody is fooled by the fact that these are absolutely not free and fair elections, and therefore they, they are not at all democratic. So that's the, the kind of, uh, of, of development you had in, in Russia. It was not inevitable. There were conditions inside that uh, pushed in that direction. And I should say also the the real democratic forces in Russia were never really uh, helped by the the kind of policies of of Western countries. I mean, I mentioned what happened even at the time of uh, Yeltsin's uh, onslaught on the parliament, uh, which which was approved or supported by by Washington. So it's a a sad and and long story now of uh, this this shift to the far right of the the Russian regime, which is also why it's uh, so much... uh, liked by the global far right, including the U.S. far right. Their fascination for Putin is part of exactly the mindset that they share uh, with him. Going back to some of the points you were making about the United States and how it plays such an an outsized role in world affairs and ordering the global system and, and so on, and how the United States has been through the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century, the major force that's, that's carried out military interventions and has, has carried out massive, massive violence. Obviously, there can be a perspective that, you know, would sort of hear that and think that you're therefore making judgments about the ruling class or, you know, the political and economic elite in in the US versus their counterparts in China and Russia. And, you know, one could look at those three three states and say, well, you know, China intervenes militarily least of those three countries. And and therefore, you know, the people running China are sort of like the nicest people out of those three different political uh, elites. Uh, and, you know, Russia, perhaps a, a bit less worse than the US because Russia intervenes less, uh, uh, you know, militarily in the world than the United States. But you make the point in the book, and uh, just to quote you for a moment, you say, regarding China and, and the fact that it hasn't fought a war since since its intervention in, in Vietnam in the 1970s, you say that it is a factual judgment, not a normative one. 
an observation that is corroborated by the nature of the material interests of the Chinese state and government. I just wonder if you could sort of expand on that point and the, the fact that you're not making moral claims about the Chinese, Russian and, and, and American elites. You're not saying one is better than the other, right? Uh, well, I'm not speaking in terms of regimes, but, uh, uh, well, I would say one one foreign policy is better than the other. Yeah, of course. In order to get where China is, uh, China actually needed what it called uh, the peaceful rise at some point and peaceful development later. That is, they understood that it is in the interest of building their own economy and lifting up their population out of poverty and uh, into uh, better and better uh, social economic conditions, they needed to focus on that and therefore to keep low profile on, uh, on military issues. And I'm saying that this is a matter related to the material interest of the ruling elite there, which is a bureaucratic elite, which found a new source of legitimacy in the economic development of China, right? I mean, its its original legitimacy is in the national uh, liberation, in the fight against uh, the Japanese invasion and the rest. You know the history of the Chinese communists and uh, how they took over the whole of, of China and completed that in uh, 1949. So that was in a war, first against the, 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 the Japanese and then against the right-wing Chinese uh, forces that they're coming down. Okay, so they had their legitimacy initially in this, plus uh, in uh, defending the interest of the peasantry, the, the, the workers, uh, against uh, the uh, initially against the wealthy classes. And this uh, legitimacy diminished with time, and you had some terrible experiences, uh, some big economic problems in China in the 50s and 60s, and on also the background of the, the, the so-called Cultural Revolution. So the ruling elite, after all this turmoil of the, the 60s and, uh, and early 70s, saw its interest into shifting towards building up the Chinese economy and uh, getting the country out of the, the economic dire straits in which uh, it found itself uh, at that point. So you have this material interest that would translate in the fact that uh, China, having also considered the lesson of the, the Soviet Union, which uh, had to compete militarily with the United States, and therefore spent much above its means in order to compete with a much bigger economy, that of the United States, to keep matching the United States militarily in military expenditure, they understood that this is ruinous, that this is not what they should do. So they kept a relatively limited level of military expenditure much lower over those decades than both Russia and the United States uh, when you compare not only in absolute terms, but relative to the GDP. In terms of uh, share of the GDP, China uh, spends even today much less on military issues than the United States or Russia for that matter. Of course, especially now Russia is engaged in war, full-scale war. So China did that. So that translated into this, uh, this kind of, uh, uh, relatively speaking, I mean, peaceful behavior in international relations, with the exception of uh, the South China Sea, where they had those disputes. Now, they didn't go to the extent of war, but in their conception, they see that 
as also a defensive matter because they, they have the United States bases uh, everywhere. And therefore, they tend to deal with that in a way that is uh, uh, regarded by the uh, other countries as encroaching on their uh, their own rights. So you have this big issue. Of course, you have domestic issues. Xinjiang is a appalling case of persecution. You have Tibet. Uh, I mean, so China has, uh, I mean, the Chinese government, Chinese regime. I'm not saying that they are angels, but... Again, in comparative terms, and when it comes beyond these stories that I just mentioned, when it comes to the global, to foreign policy, they have been consistently supporters of what they keep claiming, UN-based policies, respect to the, for the UN Charter, non-interference, that's a, a major principles for the Chinese, non-interference in other countries' internal affairs, and that's why they resent very much the constant interference of Washington, which allows itself, of course, the the right to intervene in everybody's affairs. Washington's behavior on the global scale is amazingly arrogant. And so the, the Chinese have had a, a different set of policies. And in that sense, they appear as, if you want, the adult in the room of this international relations uh, situation. And now they are very much pushing forward to that. Like, look at the kind of reconciliation they sponsored between the Saudis and the Iranians. So they they are showing that, contrary to the United States, which is uh, just uh, pouring fuel on the global fire everywhere it, it can, they are people promoting reconciliation, negotiations, and the rest. So one can hope that they remain on that kind of line. Now, one can fear that that won't be the case, especially if the economic situation in China deteriorates, you will have the temptation of this increasingly authoritarian regime of Xi Jinping to do, I mean, in some way what uh, what Putin has done, or the rest, that is, exploit the nationalism again, and therefore turn, or you, you could see, we could see a turn towards more aggressive policies that would start with their uh, their immediate periphery, Taiwan or South China Sea or the rest. I hope not. And we all should hope not because the world has enough problems like that and we don't want anymore. So one, one can wish that, that uh, China remains on this kind of course that has been its uh, course, in, in international issues uh, over the last few decades, and uh, and one can only wish that this kind of behavior become generalized, because that should be the kind of behavior that you should have on the global level if you want to, to have a really peaceful, a peaceful world and peaceful relations between countries. The so-called rules-based international order, well, when Washington speaks of that, it means its own rules, and other countries are not going to accept those rules. The only rules-based international order that is acceptable to should be acceptable to all countries is the the one based on the on the UN on the UN Charter, and uh, the UN was built in drawing the lessons of the the two world wars that devastated the world during the first half of the twentieth century. So these lessons were codified in this uh, UN Charter as a framework for peaceful international relations and uh, a focus on uh, development instead of war. 
I think this is in the existing world. I mean, we're not going into utopias of a radically different world. I'm speaking of the, the in the in the present world. This is the the, the best alternative that you have, and it's an existing one. So you don't need to to invent it to this new cold war into which uh, we are today. That very much brings me on to my last question. So one of the objections that is made regarding prioritizing, as you say, the UN Charter and perhaps shifting to a position more similar to to the one made by the Chinese, which emphasizes the principle of sovereignty and non-interference in other states, is that it would give carte blanche to individual states to carry out atrocities or oppress particular populations inside their own their own borders with no prospect of any meaningful repercussions. And potentially that might also include a genocide in, occurring within a given state. No, not at all. You know, I mean, we have to make a distinction between uh, relations between states and civil societies, right? The civil society is not bound by interstate relations. So, yes, I think it's a, it's a fair principle that states should not interfere in each other's internal affairs because this leads to a lot of problems. And secondly, this is never, never an equal democratic kind of rule because that always means the interference of the strong in the affairs of the weak, right? Always. So we don't want this. Therefore, you should have those rules in the coexistence of states on the uh, on the, the global level. Now, this should not prevent at all political parties, political movements, uh, and all that to fight, uh, to denounce what's happening in this or that other country. And also, you have other other means, like, for instance, uh, a social clause in, in the provided that it is on a equal uh, basis and not uh, uh, double standards. If you have you can apply standards to economic relations, to uh, uh, other issues, taking into account what is happening inside countries, of course. So one thing is the interference of the state as such in the affairs and the statements like those of Washington all the time about all other countries in the world. And the other is the social movement, political movement, and the rest. Support being given by those movements to oppositions in other countries, like for today, I mean, I was speaking of the support for the Democrats and anti-war people in in Russia, for instance. And uh, you also have at the level of the UN that was created after uh, the Cold War, the mechanism called the Responsibility to Protect, R2P. And that is, as it is in the United Nations, that's something that goes through the Security Council. So that requires a decision of the Security Council. So it's not something that Western countries can invoke alone. They can't, right? It has to go through this Security Council, which means the approval, tacit or uh, explicit, of uh, both uh, Beijing, Moscow, Washington, Paris, and London. These five countries uh, that have veto power in the UN Security Council. So this gives at least some degree of warranty that you may have an international intervention to prevent a a huge uh, massacre or genocide or whatever, but it has to be a consensus issues between major powers. Otherwise, well, you, you, this therefore is unilateral intervention but by one of these powers, which can use pretext for this matter and therefore lead to huge tensions in international relations. So you have 
different mechanisms. So when we speak of a world order based on international law and the UN Charter, that doesn't mean one in which uh, any uh, dictator is free to genocide uh, their people. There are ways to fight against that. And uh, again, the, the issue is not getting into hypothetic scenarios. The issue is more look at what happened in fact when you had a real genocide like in Rwanda, they did not intervene to do it. And uh, the wars they they waged, like Iraq and the rest, had nothing to do with any defense of uh, democracy or uh, or prevention of, uh, of, of genocide. So, you know, you can wish for a very different, uh, uh, also even United Nations, you can think of a United Nations built on a different basis and all that. I mean, this is utopic. And it's good. It's good to have such utopias and to fight for for changes. But if you want to deal realistically with what with the, the, on the present situation, and believe me, Alex, we are less and less in a position to afford just utopias when the world is burning. There is a major emergency in which we are at the global level. There is urgency. There is fire. Uh, in the world, in the in the, uh, the the proper sense and the metaphoric sense, and that's why, if you face that world now, for what do you fight? You fight for what what is possible, not what is uh, ideal, but what is the best possible today alternative. And the only one I can see for the betterment of international relations and global peace is the United Nations. I mean, no one has been able to show me any other credible and realistic alternative today. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.